We are starting a new uh, sermon series uh, this morning. We're going to go back into the book of Mark. But the very first sermon, our, like Mark chapter 1 intro sermon, Tyson preached that on the 22nd of March this year, which was the first Sunday we were online. Um, sorry, no, the second Sunday we were online. And we finished before we actually got back together. So this is the first time we've uh, been in the book of Mark actually together in the flesh. So I'm excited about that. Um, and it's a real key uh, passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, um, starting in verse 2. Or well, I'll read verse 1 and then on to verse 13. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bible or your uh, scroll there on your device, and, I'm gonna, and I will read that uh, for you. And then we'll pray, and then we'll just jump into the message for this morning. Mark chapter 9, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And they were uh, talking, sorry, lost my place, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen uh, from the dead. And they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as is written about him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word is truth, that your word brings life and hope um, and encouragement and challenge to us. Lord, would you come now and be here among us um, through your Holy Spirit and teach us your, your ways. Teach us who you are. Teach us um, to listen. Teach us to hear. Teach us to do your word as well as to hear your word. Lord, help me uh, to speak clearly um, and boldly as I should, and help us, Lord, to be encouraged and be transformed um, into your, the image of your son Jesus as we listen. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Today, of course, is the last Sunday in 2020, and as, as I said, we're starting this new series. Um, we're calling it, well, the, the last, or the first half of the Book of Mark, we call Jesus Explored. Uh, I thought about calling this next half, the second half, something like Jesus Unchained or Jesus Unleashed, and then I thought it made it sound like a wrestler, so I didn't go with that. We've gone with just a, a simple question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to to die, because that is the central question of the, the back half of Mark, and I'll explain a little bit more of that uh, this morning. Um, but that's really the question we're going to be looking at for the next kind of 13 weeks as we lead into Easter. We're going to be in Mark for every Sunday up until Easter, except for one, and that is our one-year anniversary, which is going to be on 6th of Feb. But every other Sunday until Easter, we're going to be in Mark. 
All right, so the inspiration from this, for this question, why did Jesus have to die, um, comes from two places. Uh, the first place is from my kids, because they like to ask lots of why questions. Um, questions like, why does food taste so much better when someone else cooks it for you? Now, I, my kids have actually never asked that question, but Katrina and I ask that question all the time. We like to, you know, if, we, if the other person cooks, it just tastes a little bit better. I don't, I don't know why. There's probably some scientific answer for that. But the second inspiration for this sermon title series comes from um, the Gospel of Mark itself, which sh- is, should make a bit of sense, since that's where we're going to be in. Um, just a, a quick review of where we left off. You can remember the last Sunday we were in Mark, I think, was in the beginning of June. Um, and, and so where we left off, Jesus was with his disciples. He was up in the northern part of Israel. He's not in Jerusalem. He's up in the, the northern part of Israel in kind of the high, what was the high country, um, in a mountain. We're going to look. He's going to be up on a mountain today. It's a place called Mount Hermon, which is the like the highest mountain that you can see for miles and miles around. That's where he was, and, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Um, and Peter, who was kind of, you know, the most famous of, of Jesus' disciples, ended up kind of being the, the, the leader of the early church. He was having a bit of an off day. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing as well. Like, he had just done something really good. Like, he had accurately answered Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And, and he, said, he said, you know, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus responds to him and, and says, well, you've answered well, and, and you clearly didn't get that from your own wealth of knowledge. God revealed that to you directly. And he was feeling pretty good about himself. He got high marks from Jesus on that day. And then Jesus goes on to say, you know what? The Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be treated really badly. He's going to suffer. He's going to die and then rise again. And, and, and Peter, it says, takes Jesus, the Messiah that he's just identified, takes him aside and says, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, man. That is not going to happen to you. You're the hero that we are following. You're our leader. We'll do anything for you, but you're not going to die. We're not going to let that happen to you. It can't be. And Jesus responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. He, he kind of says, you're, you're, you're on the wrong team right now, man. You're, you're, you know, you know you, you've got in mind the things of the world, not the things of God. And so he went from this, like, full marks to zero in a matter of seconds. And then... Um, Right after that, Peter is kind of, you know, he's pretty discouraged. Jesus says, you know what? Anyone who follows me, anyone who follows me is not going to be sitting in a palace. Anyone who follows me is going to deny himself and deny herself and take up his cross and follow me. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to follow me, the Messiah, because that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a suffering uh, Messiah before I'm a reigning uh, Messiah. And so Peter probably had this question kind of rattling around in his head as he was being told off by Jesus. You know, why? I don't understand, Lord. Why? Why do you have to die? I mean, you know, Elijah, we're going to look at Elijah. You know, he didn't really die. He got whisked up to heaven and with a chariot of fire. If that is what, if good enough for Elijah, surely Jesus, the Son of God, isn't going to be die, die a humiliating death on a cross. Surely not. But why? Because we know that happened, but why? Today we're going to look at an episode in chapter 9 that is known as the transfiguration uh, of Jesus. Uh, We don't talk about this episode a whole lot in the church, which is interesting because if you go back and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this episode is right at the center. It is right at the center of the Gospel story in all three uh, of those Gospels, and it is referenced even in the Gospel of John just in a sort of an oblique way. 
Um, Only three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, actually were eyewitnesses uh, to this event. Um, And that's Jesus' inner circle. And, and it's not an accident that it comes right after this sort of epic fail uh, by Peter, where, he, you know, Peter tries to tell Jesus how to be the best Messiah that he can be. Um, Jesus is going to show him the kind of Messiah that he actually is, and it's so much better than anything that Peter has in mind, anything that we uh, might have in mind. So why did Jesus have to die, and what did, does his death 2,000 years ago have to do with us? Those are the questions we're going to be looking at over the next few months. Um, all right. The first thing, I'm going to just look at the first three verses of this section that I read. And, and, and what I want you to see from these three verses is this, is that Jesus is the light sent from heaven. Jesus is the light sent from heaven, and I'm going to explain a little bit what that means. Just, again, starting with some context. We know this episode is connected to what Jesus has just said in verse one, because in verse two, it says after six days or six days later, which is a bit unusual for Mark. Mark is known, one of the features of Mark is that he doesn't give a lot of specific time references. He'll just say, this happened, and then immediately this happened. He doesn't say how much time kind of lapsed in that immediately. Sometimes it's a matter of seconds. Sometimes it's a, a few days. He does, he's not real specific, but here, Unusually so, he is specific. He says six days later. Six days after what? Well, verse 1, he says, Truly, I tell you, there's some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And six days later, this happens. Six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up a mountain to show them what? The power of the kingdom of God. This is a fulfillment of what he had just said, and it was intended for their eyes only. Jesus tells them, uh, down in verse 9, don't tell anybody about this until after I've uh, risen from the dead. So why is it so important that these three men see the power of the kingdom of God in this particular way before they died? Well, again, back in chapter 8, he's already told them that in this life, they're going to have some tough times. They're going to suffer. They're going to have to deny themselves. They're going to have to lay down their rights. They're going to have to do things which are uncomfortable, do things they don't want to do, go to places they don't want to go, talk to people they don't want to talk to. They're going to have to lay down themselves for the sake of following Jesus. And so you think they might, like we would, I think, in their shoes, get sometimes a bit discouraged, a bit tired, a bit worn out. They're going to suffer. See, one of the things that people call, start to question when they suffer is, you know, did I really get it right? Is this really the life that Jesus, that God is calling me to live, or am I just sort of torturing myself for nothing? Well, that's a question that's going to be going onto their heads at the, you know, as they go through stuff. Why is this happening to me now? Jesus knew that his followers, all of them, from his closest ones, the, his inner circle, all the way out to anyone who follows and claims the name of Jesus, is going to have tough times, and that they need to see something. They need to see a glimpse of his glory. It needs to be seared into their mind's eyes, seared into their memories. And so Jesus here, what he's doing is he's going to peel back the curtain, as it were, and show them his glory. I don't know if you know, remember in the Old Testament where Moses is with Jesus, or sorry, with God on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, 
And he says, ah, show me your glory. Peter, Peter didn't ask for a glimpse of, his, uh, of Jesus' glory, but he's going to give it to him anyway. He's going to show him that, you know, he's not a fraud. He's not a crazy person. He is who he says he is. He is glorious. He is the light of the world sent from heaven. Um, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but I wonder if any of you have ever done what they tell you not to do and, like, look directly at the sun during an eclipse. We had one a couple years ago. I think there was that picture of, like, Donald Trump looking at one. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever done that. I did it when I was a kid. It was like a partial eclipse. I put on these cheap, like, 50-cent sunglasses, and I thought I'd be fine. Not. But what happens when you look at a bright light or you look at the sun? Or even if you're watching TV or playing, watching a computer screen for a long time, what happens? Is that light, the image, it is sort of burned, as it were, into your, into your eye, into your retina, so that even when the, it goes away or you close your eyes, you can still see it. It does something to your eyes, to the molecules in your eyes, and it takes a while for it to sort of get back to normal, as it were. Um, if you stare long enough at a bright light, um, you, you know, your pupils will have to kind of contract so quickly, you get a, you get a big headache. Um, but you can still see the light because that light leaves a pretty solid impression on your eye. And see, Jesus was doing that here. He wanted to leave a big impression on the eyes of his three closest friends, one that would last more than just a few seconds, one that would keep coming into their minds again and again and again. And so it says he was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launder on earth could whiten them. Uh, the word transfigured, it's a bit of a strange word. We don't use it a lot in regular life. Um, it's only used in the Bible here. Um, and in Matthew, uh, to describe this episode. But the Greek word that is translated into English, uh, transfigured, is the word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. Um, it's used here in the Bible and in a couple of other places, uh, which I'll come back to later. But I want you to understand that this transfiguration, this transformation of Jesus' appearance, isn't um, your typical, what I'd call your typical superhero transformation. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen a superhero movie or two, and there's always that scene, at least in the very first one, um, where this, the, the ordinary man or woman uh, is transformed into their superhero um, appearance. And superhero has the superhuman powers. And or some, you know, an ordinary man gets exposed to radiation and then becomes the Incredible Hulk or gets bitten by a spider and becomes Spider-Man. But superhero transformations are different than what we see here because a superhero always requires some sort of catalyst uh, from the outside to transform. Always some kind of, you know, the radiation, the mad scientist, the something uh, to make the ordinary person the werewolf or the super soldier or whatever they are. Um, but Jesus' transformation is different in two ways. Number one, he transformed all by himself. He didn't need anybody from the outside to sort of give him some potion or anything like that. He just did it. Um, what he... Uh, was in complete control. The second thing that makes it different is that he transformed not into something that he wasn't. He transformed into something he already was. He transformed into what he already was. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas carols that we sang on Friday is the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's a little phrase in the second verse that says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You see, you look at Jesus the human, in the flesh, and you're looking at Jesus the human and Jesus who is fully God. But there's, a, there's his divinity, his divine power is, is 
as it were, masked, hidden within his human flesh. And so here in this moment, in this transfiguration moment, he's peeling back the veil, peeling back the curtain, as it will, and giving his disciples a glimpse of his glory, of his power, of his light. That's what's going on. Um, Jesus um, took Peter, James, and John to this mountain to burn this truth into their minds. He says, I am the God. I am God. I'm the one whose very first act of creation was to say, let there be what? Let there be light. The one who, according to Psalm 104, verse 2, says that he wraps himself in light as if it were a robe. What is Jesus saying to them? What is he wanting to burn into their mind's eye? Who is he? He is the God that David speaks of in the Psalms. And this is who he was from the beginning. He's not transforming into something he wasn't. He's showing them what he already was. He's the God of the universe, the light of the universe, the one who lives, as Paul says, in unapproachable light and yet comes down and is near to us, the one who calls us to live in that same light with him. Jesus is the light sent from heaven. Which leads us to the second kind of point of this whole episode, and that is how to respond to the light, how to respond to the, his brightness. The right response to Jesus as the light sent from heaven is to listen to his words, to listen to his words. What does it mean to live in Jesus' light? We get a good idea as the episode continues. First, we see uh, this kind of the, a bit of a, a strange thing in that we see the appearance of two heroes from the Old Testament, Moses uh, and Elijah. And they, these two men represent the high water marks of Israel's history. Moses led God's people out of slavery um, and out of Egypt and into uh, the, through the wilderness. He received the law. Uh, from God on Mount Sinai. His face shone with God's glory when he came down from the mountain. And then we have Elijah, who's the prophet, who called God's people back uh, to God and away from idols, back to faithfulness with majestic signs and, and wonders. And here, here are these two men, hundreds of years after they died. And they're, again, they're in the flesh. They're not ghosts. They're there in the flesh, and they're talking with Jesus. In Luke's version of this uh, same moment, he tells us that... Um, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, he tells us what they were talking about, which is interesting. He is, you know, they were able to listen in. He says they were talking about Jesus' departure, his departure, which is kind of a, a funny thing to talk about, someone's departure, because they weren't talking about that he was going on some exotic holiday, um, not that kind of departure. They were talking about his upcoming death, his up, how he was going to depart the earth, how was he going to die, and why was he going to die. That's what they were discussing. Uh, Jesus is God, the fountain of all knowledge, and he's giving this information uh, to these prophets, to Moses and Elijah, showing what? That he is better and more knowing, more wise, and more powerful than them. How his ministry, Jesus' ministry, and specifically his death, will be a fulfillment of their ministries. Peter here, um, again, gets things wildly wrong. He says in verse 5, Rabbi, which means teacher, um, it's good for us to be here. It's the kind of thing you say when you don't know what to say. It's good, to, it's good that we're here. You know, you were talking about all that suffering, all that rubbish. Here we are. 
Here we get these two heroes, and, and you're showing, you're, you picked us to see this. It's, it's good to be here. Um, but we know from what Mark says, he has no idea what he's talking about. And he says in verse 6 that he was actually terrified. He was scared to death. Do you know anyone who's, you know, when they get really nervous or scared, they talk a lot? Don't look at anyone. Just judge them quietly. Um, I, I, I'm like that, so it's okay. Um, and Peter turned out okay in the end. So if that's you, don't feel too bad. Um, he says to Jesus, why don't we put up these tents for these three guys? One for, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. I don't know if he's thinking maybe we could you know, charge money for people to come and see this is where it all happened, sell t-shirts. I don't know what, he, what the tents were exactly about, but perhaps it was just a way to honor these men and what they were, um, who they were and their significance. But notice what he does when he, he says the three tents, he's putting the three, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, what, on equal footing. I mean, maybe the Jesus tent was a little bit bigger, but it, from what he's saying, he, he, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. He just gives this kind of suggestion. Um, he doesn't realize that Jesus is more than just a man who can perform signs and wonders or speak on God's behalf like Moses did. Um, he is God himself, and, and he doesn't fully get that yet. And, you know, even Solomon... Remember Solomon, he, he was the guy who built the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. And even as he built this majestic building, he said at the dedication of that building, he said, this building will never contain God because God, not even the whole universe could contain him. He's not able to be contained and confined to space. And yet Peter wants to build a tent uh, for Jesus. This is a good example of how human religion sort of works, how the human religious mind works. We, we want to, you know, build memorials. We want to kind of take God, the divine, the, the, the ineffable, um, who dwells in approachable, unapproachable light, and we want to shrink him down and kind of package him and make him a, a, a bit of a commodity, something that we can fit in our field of vision, something we can hold, something we can visit. Imagine if Peter went ahead with building these tents, and then the Jesus movement became all about making a pilgrimage to this mountain. The whole thing would have lasted and done well and been profitable until the day the Romans came and burned it all down. And that would have been it. Jesus' movement finished. Never would have made it out of Palestine. But this time, Jesus noticed he doesn't tell Peter off. He doesn't rebuke him. There's just a cloud that comes down and blocks, kind of separates where Peter and James and John are standing from Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Like, they can't, there's this cloud in the middle. Um, and... Uh, it's a, it's a sign of the cloud, you know, the presence of God we saw with the cloud in, um, in, in the days of Moses. And what comes through the cloud is not a ray of light, but a voice. And the voice says this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. In a sense, this voice from heaven summarizes everything that Moses and Elijah did in their prophetic ministries. He said, you know, they were saying, this is what God is like. Listen to him. Listening to God properly is, is so far away from religious sentimentalism, the kind of thing I was just describing, you know, because anybody can put a Jesus t-shirt on. A anybody can use Jesus-y sounding words. You, you can even read the Bible. You can listen to sermons. You can come to church and not listen to Jesus. That's why Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount this poignant question. He says, why do you, and he's talking to ordinary people and religious people, why do you call me Lord? Why do you, why, why, why do you say you're a Christian 
and, and don't do the things that I say. And, and then he goes on to connect hearing and listening with doing. He says, you can't follow me without listening to me, and if you listen to me, then you do what I say. And that's a direct command from Jesus, from God himself. So now before you think I'm preaching that you can save yourself by simply following Jesus' rules, you need to keep this command to listen and obey in its right context. Because when Jesus, if you remember when God spoke to Jesus at his baptism, we looked at that in Mark chapter 1, we had the voice from heaven again. I don't know if you remember, you know, the voice from heaven comes, this is my beloved son with whom or in whom I am well pleased. He has the same voice from heaven here, but he says something a little bit different. He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I think the difference in those two voices in the, in the, in the wording there has to do with his audience. Because at the baptism, he was talking to the crowds. Talking to the crowds, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because what the crowds needed is to see Jesus as God. They need to see him as Lord. They need to see him as worthy and glorious. What the disciples needed, see, they were already following him. What they needed was a reminder that following, listening, obeying to him is what life as a Christian is about. The command to listen and obey, it doesn't go out to people who can't do it, people who don't have the Spirit. It goes to the people who know him, who've been saved by him, who've been chosen by him, to walk and live in the light. I wonder, excuse me, if you can remember the day or the moment that, uh, you know, when God peeled back the curtain for you, as it were, when you saw and understood Jesus and you understood grace, for who he is and for what grace is, the time you knew that the gospel was true, that you knew that in Jesus you have peace with God, that your sins had been forgiven, that the life you were created for, eternal life, was a free gift to you from God himself. The moment that your eyes were opened, that you began to not only change, but you began to want to change, to, to want to serve him, to want to know him, that's what it means to live in uh, the light because his light first shone on your heart. And since that day, you've never been the same. You've never wanted to be the same. I, I said before I come back to that word for transfigured, the word metamorpho and how it's used in the Bible. Paul uses this word twice in his letters. Uh, and you might have heard some sermons on these verses. I'll, I'll, I'll give you both of them. The first one is Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but metamorphuste, be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, to follow Jesus, uh, to be a Christian, is to walk in the light by listening to his words so that the way that we think, the way we make decisions is changed day after day after day until we are like Jesus. The second place Paul uses this word is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where we read this. We all, with unveiled faces, curtain peeled back, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are metamorphometha, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 
This is a promise that's given only to Christians who have already been saved by Jesus, who have already seen the light. And once the light shines on you, once it burns into your retinas, it starts to change you. So if you want to change, what do you do? You expose yourself to the light. You spend time with him. You listen to his words in scripture. You dwell on them. You ask his spirit to teach you his ways. You get around God's people that are walking in the light with you. That's why God comes to Peter and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not first to Moses and Elijah, not first to the people around you, not to the world, but him. Listen to him. Do what he says. It's the only acceptable, the only logical, the only possible way to follow Jesus is to listen to him. So how do you do it? How do you listen to Jesus? I don't mean how does some theoretical person somewhere out there listen to Jesus. How do you do it? How do you listen to Jesus personally? What's your plan for listening to Jesus better in 2021? Because it's good to have a plan. Does it involve spending time in, in his word? Because we can help with that. Does it involve spending time with other listeners? Other people walking in the light? Does it involve perhaps pushing the mute button on other things that you might be listening to, whether it's social media or video games or too much time at work or advertisements, too much time focusing on your appearance or worrying about the future. I, I don't know what it is for you, but some of those things we do need to think about pushing the mute button and ask God for help in that, ask each other for help in that. One of the reasons we do discipleships in groups here at City Light South is because it's so easy to stop listening to Jesus and start listening to those other sounds and voices. And the people in this room, by God's grace, people in this room, by God's grace, might well be the means to your change, the means to your transformation, to your metamorphosis. So let's make this a massive priority in 2021. Not just thinking about the next year like the world. Next year, 2021, it's the year we kick COVID to the curb. But let next year be the year we kick apathy to the curb. Stop making following Jesus about religious mountaintop experiences and shrine building, but instead about the daily decision to walk in the light and to be changed. We, the right response to Jesus is to listen to him. And then the third thing I want to say from this text is this. If we live in the light with Jesus, and this is going to be hard for some of us to hear, if we live in the light with Jesus, we will suffer like he did. We'll suffer like he did. It's a bit of a sober reminder, but remember where Peter's headspace was when this all started? He knew Jesus was the Messiah, but then he said the Messiah is going to suffer. And then he implied in the next little thing that he said is that everyone who follows Messiah will also suffer in the same kinds of ways. Peter wasn't comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with that. We're not comfortable with that. So now here, they're coming down off this mountaintop experience. And Jesus, again, tells them to keep quiet. Don't make the mountaintop experience the centerpiece of your faith. It's important. It's burned into your mind, but it's not the centerpiece. They raise this question about Elijah. It's a, a theological, a biblical question. Uh, uh, why did the scribes say that Elijah has to come first, before the Messiah? They, they just want some clarity. Um, they have clearly no idea why. They just met Elijah um, in the flesh. 
He'd been dead for hundreds of years, but they bring up this well-known fact about the Messiah that uh, his rule and reign would be preceded by a prophet whose ministry was like that to Elijah. Where did they get that? Well, it comes from the Bible. It comes from the book of Malachi chapter 4. Um, you can look it up if you like in verses Malachi 4, verse 4 to 6. It's actually the last verses in the Old Testament. It's how the Old Testament ends. Uh, this promise or prophecy that Elijah or one like Elijah would come prior to the day of the Lord, prior to the Lord himself coming. And he would, his ministry would be to make people like us ready to meet the Lord. And it says he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and children back to the fathers. And in, in other words, he would purify the people and restore their relationships and so that people were together pointing people and making people ready to meet the Messiah, to meet the Lord. And the New Testament makes it clear that this prophecy, this Elijah figure, is fulfilled in John the Baptist. He's the one who came before Jesus to call people to repentance, to turn them, to turn their hearts, to turn their desires, to make them aware of their sinful condition so that they might want to call on the name of God and want to be saved. That was, his, that was John the Baptist's ministry. And so here in verses 12 and 13, she says Jesus answers them and then asks another question, as he often does. He, he says, Elijah did come. He, he, came, he, he came to restore all things just as was promised. He came first. But guess what? They, and he doesn't say who they are. He assumes that, they, that Peter knows. They did to him whatever they pleased. It's this mysterious they. Well, what does he mean? If you remember the story of John the Baptist, which we saw earlier in Mark, um, John the Baptist was out there in the desert calling people to repentance, and he even was speaking directly to the king, speaking truth to power, if you like, and the king, particularly the king's wife, did not like it, and he ended up in jail, and eventually he ended up losing his head. Um, the powerful they hated him so much that he ended up dead. But why doesn't Jesus just answer their Bible question about Elijah and just kind of leave it there? Yep, Elijah comes before the Messiah. Yep, let's move on. Because Jesus has a different agenda here. He's not just giving them information, not just giving them trivia. He is speaking to their hearts. And so he asks another question. He asks this question in verse 13. Or sorry, verse 12. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt in the very same way that John the Baptist suffered and was treated with contempt? So he's speaking to their hearts. He's, he's getting back to that point again, saying, yes, the Messiah must suffer, just like the one who came before him will suffer. And the question we're left to ask is why? Jesus says he's going to suffer just like John the Baptist, and the people who follow him will carry their crosses too. But why? Well, let me tie this into what we've already seen in the text. Jesus is the light sent from heaven. He's the light of the world, the radiance of God's glory, you might remember from Hebrews 1. But listen to what John the Apostle says about Jesus as the light sent from heaven. Listen to this passage, familiar to some of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. This is Jesus he's talking about. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was what? The light of men. But where does that light shine? Verse 5, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. What, what does he imply there? He implies there a battle, if you like, a conflict between light and darkness. And 
The suffering that the disciples were going to experience and our suffering comes right there in the middle of that conflict between light and darkness. And the question is, where's the front lines of that conflict? And, and I've said this a lot. I've said this in the series we've just come through. Often we want to think that the conflict is out there. That it's the darkness is out there. It's people and, and demonic forces attacking me or us in here. But in reality, if you read the New Testament carefully, you find that the front lines of this conflict between light and darkness happens in here for all of us. The battle between light and darkness is the battle that happens in our hearts. And suffering is the crucible at, at which we become aware of the battle. And we throw ourselves on the one who suffered for us and suffered before us and calls us to suffer with him and to count it all joy. We know as we suffer and as he meets us in those moments of suffering and difficulty that the darkness will never win. He has won the battle. So you can keep going. You, you don't have to run away from the light when it gets hard. You run to the light. You don't have to run alone when it gets hard because he is with you. And we are with you in that moment. There are going to be some things this year that you're going to face. Some things that you're going to have to die to, to give up. Some tough calls to make. But you'll never do it alone. His spirit is in you. His light is in you. His people are here around you. And just like we've learned to say as a, as a nation, as a world, as a society in 2020, we really are in this together as God's people. It's not just an advertisement. Let me, let me wrap this up by sharing with you just a little passage from what I'm calling Peter's journal, his personal, his personal journal. He's reflecting on this moment, this mountaintop experience years later. And you can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 16 to, to 18. And he says, remember, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God, when the, God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what he said to baptism. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. It's a transfiguration. And Peter didn't understand the light when he saw it at first. He was terrified of it. But that light was so burned into his mind's eye on that day, that voice burned into his memory, those words in it. Those words made him confident. They gave him courage. Not straight away. Remember, he, 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 his courage completely failed him the day, the day of Jesus' death. But eventually, he would be courageous. Day after day, glory to glory, the light was changing him. One day, Peter would find himself crucified on, a, on an actual cross, upside down. Same Peter who one time, Jesus said, was a mouthpiece for Satan. He once called down curses on himself to deny Jesus was changed. He was unrecognizable because he walked in the light day after day. So I don't know what words you use to describe yourself today or this year, but if you walk in the light of Jesus daily, 
then whatever those words were in the past are not going to be the words in the future because he is at work in you. He's called you to himself, and he is changing you. He will change you. Your work and my work is to stay close to the light, to Jesus, the one who is God, the one who radiates light, who wears it like a robe, to listen to his words and, and do them, to suffer with him as the light continues to push back the darkness in your heart. And one day, the darkness will be gone, and everything will be light, and you will be unrecognizable, shining in the light of his glory because of what he has done in you. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we ask you to come now and do what only you can do, and that is to change us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may this year be the year of metamorphosis for us. Lord, would you change us, make us glorious, not so that we might attract attention and glory for ourselves, but so that our lives might reflect, be a reflection even in our suffering of your glory, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your grace. Oh, Lord, would you do that for us this year and every year that you, give, that you grace us with on earth. And we pray these things and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.